Engagement without accountability creates entitlement. I'm all about engaging folks. I would tell you that if you only have high accountables in your workplace, they're easy to reward and engage. I will give them anything because anything I spend on them comes back threefold. Welcome to part one of a special edition episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast, featuring conversations with many of our keynote speakers who will be headlining the 2022 Game Changer Summit. But if I'm trying to buy somebody's commitment or love or buy-in, it's never going to happen and it's never going to be sustainable. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're revisiting our conversations with the thought leaders who will be headlining the Game Changers Summit on the field of Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, Georgia. Featuring thought leaders from the legal industry and beyond, this episode will have you on the edge of your seat. The whole idea of being an entrepreneur is to get to a place in your life where you do not have to pick up the phone when it rings, that nobody has control over your destiny anymore. If the phone is ringing and you don't wanna answer it, you don't have to. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. To kick off this episode, we revisit the conversation I had with Cy Wakeman, workplace drama expert, leadership consultant, and New York Times bestselling author. Her reality-based approach to leadership has transformed thousands of organizations from cultures of disengaged entitlement to ones of high accountability. Cy believes that the path to a thriving workplace starts by eliminating drama and emotional waste. Drama basically is the funky name for what we call emotional waste. So emotional waste is any energy that's taken away from results or happiness, i.e. engagement at work. So when you think about it, it's disruptive behavior, which is stemming from usually unproductive thinking. And what would be some examples? Examples. Yes, of of emotional waste. Tattling, scorekeeping, venting, blaming, resisting change, withholding buy-in, holding the organization hostage, um, giving terroristic demands in order to get my engagement, And these are very measurable behaviors. Well, early on, I I believe it was in No Ego, you put a stat in there that left me shell-shocked. The amount of time that leaders in organizations spend dealing with emotional waste daily, weekly, monthly, I believe it was at least over two hours a day. Yeah, it's crazy. The actual figure is two hours and 26 minutes a day at work. The average person spends in drama. And what's sad about that is it's not only the lost productivity. It's not that people aren't working. They're working hard, but they're working hard with a grudge. They're working hard without full access to all of their intelligence. Like there's just a part of them that's distracted and and resentful and feeling taken advantage of. It's time that people spend feeling miserable at work that's unnecessary. It's just, it's self-imposed suffering. The challenge always I've found is that since we're talking about human beings here, yeah. at the end of the day, we're dealing with human beings which are unpredictable. Is it possible to have a 100% drama-free organization? I think if you ask my team, I can't say we're 100% drama-free. We're not robots. We get our egos hooked. But I would say that uh, drama just doesn't take the toll that it used to. Because the average organization, if you do the math, is 816 hours per person per year. And a lot of us aren't feeling like we have all the staff we need. And just think if you could upcycle 816 hours of drama a year per person and add people feeling like they liked each other rather than judged each other. In size view, drama in your workplace comes from one of the following three places. You either hired it, you allow it, or you are it. Of course, we all want to avoid bringing on emotionally expensive team members in the first place. 
but is there really a foolproof way to hack the hiring process to identify high drama candidates before you spend time, money, and resources onboarding them into your organization? First of all, get really clear about what's important to your organization if you're committed to a drama-free or at least drama-evolving organization. And I say this because we believe they did the bait and switch, but a lot of times we're the ones doing the bait and switch. We don't believe people when we see you know, the first time we don't believe them, the first time they show us who they are. We also say we want one thing, but when we get in and we see a bright, shiny resume where this person served under judge such and such as a clerk or whatever it was, we lose our minds over that, right? So we have to get very clear and be willing to go through quite a few candidates to take our time. And a lot of people have weird beliefs that they haven't looked at. Like a lot of people say, you know, oh, Cy, it's so hard to find good talent. And when I hear that, I don't experience that as an employer, but then I see the flaw in their logic. They think they have to win the talent war in their city for people in that profession. And I'm like, no, you just have to be the best place for high accountables to work. It's not a very hard competition. So like if you and I are being chased by a tiger, I don't have to beat the tiger. I just have to beat you. So I just have to have a clean workplace where high accountables love working. So I have to really clean up my own view and move my own ego out of it and really hold that confidence. I have to be willing to suffer some discomfort to hire the person I want. The second you know, way is um, rather than waiting for the interview as your data point, I like to always be recruiting. So if someone is serving me dinner and they handle a tough situation well, I'm like taking note of that because I can teach you to be a receptionist or I can teach you to be my personal assistant, but I, it's harder to teach some of this other stuff. So I'm kind of always dating out there. I'm always looking, who are my fans? Who's who For me in hiring, who knows my stuff? Who's active on social media? So that I don't have to have an interview be my only data point. When people do come in, I ask a lot of behavior-based questions. Tell me about a time in the last two weeks. I make it current. So you don't have to go back to the one time in college you screwed up. Everybody's screwed up in the last two weeks. Tell me a time in the last two weeks you've screwed up and uh, that you didn't deliver what you promised. And I let them tell me that. And I listen. Do they start out with, my boss was a nightmare. I got this dumped on me. If they start out with a backstory, they're not yet my candidate. And then I'll say, you know, I listen for eyes. Sigh, I didn't properly scope this. And so I ended up in a situation and I needed to, I love the word I. And most of us in interviews you know, oh, they're, they're egotistical if they use the word I. No, if they're claiming credit, it's ego. But if they're owning it, it, it's important. And then I ask them, if I didn't hear the word I, what's your part in that? And then I test people. So I don't just have people come in. I have people for interviews. I have people come in in shadow. And I test them as simple as I have my assistant call me out of the interview. And I have her sit down and I just say, I'm on question three, why don't you continue? And I wanna see how they handled that. Are they resilient? Do they disrespect people younger than me? Um, because my whole company is young. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of things I do like that. And then just because you hired them, I don't know, depends on the state you're in. We have 90 days probation. And if you can't live up to your interview, We'll either extend it, but probably at my company, we'll just say, you know, we're going to be testing you and you're going to be testing us in 90 days. And that's tricky. A lot of people say, well, nobody's going to risk coming to you if they know they could lose their job in 90 days. Oh, yeah. High accountables will because high accountables have nothing to fear. Next up, we're revisiting a first for the Game Changing Attorney podcast where I, the host, became the guest. Crisp's head of coaching strategy and my wife, Jessica Mogul, put me in the hot seat and asked me several hard-hitting questions to reveal why I'm a constant work in progress. I think it was at one of the GCS2, and I looked at you and I said, is this fun for you? <laughs> what was your answer? <laughs> yeah. So at, at the summits, at that point, yeah, I, I love it. But I will say that I have a, a recurring nightmare at least every other night on the way to these conferences for probably like the three, four, five, six months in advance. And it is that no one has showed up, the room is empty. And then when I, they tell me, hey Mike, you gotta go on stage. And I forgot to prepare. 
I'm like, I what? I'm sure. I like, like feel nervous with you saying. Yeah. This. I, so I'm sure some people listening have had this nightmare where it's like you're back in school or something, yeah. and you forgot that there was a class that you had that you never attended or something, and now it's coming time for like your grades. But I do feel that constantly, and it's. Yeah, what is Andy Grove, CEO of Intel? He once said he's got a great book by the title, like, Only the Paranoid Survive. I constantly feel that. And people be like, hey, what's wrong? Why can't you relax? All this stuff. I think if it paralyzes you, if it puts you in a position where you're not able to actually do things, then it's probably not healthy. But if it creates this sense of positive urgency, where it creates this dynamic where you want to do a really great job, like when we go into these conferences, I understand that people have expectations. They, they want to make sure they get a lot of value from this, everything from the content to their experience. I have a tremendous amount of respect for anybody who gets on an airplane, books a hotel room and decides to spend two days with us in Atlanta. So I want to make sure that that's well worth their time. And as we prepare for these things, all the little details, I really, really, really feel like a sense of responsibility to execute well on that. So that's where that anxiety for me comes from. And as those expectations continue to grow year over year over year, I think it becomes much more challenging. But at the same time, like we were saying at this most recent conference this past November, the pressure is a privilege to have this opportunity to create this type of experience, to do the type of work that we do. Yes, it comes with stress and yes, it comes with problem solving, but not everyone gets to experience that and, and be able to like be in a position where you have this platform to be able to help and impact people. And going back to even having problems and problem solving all the time. How do you make decisions? All right, you're going inside the sick and twisted mind. So <laughs> I do have a framework around how I make decisions. In our coaching workshops, we work through this tool that kind of does this in depth and in detail. So I start by kind of assessing, do I have enough information? And, and to me, that usually means I usually have about like 70% of the information because sometimes the time that it takes to get the other 20% like that delay that really slows decision making. Sometimes you lose opportunities that way. Also, it doesn't really give you any more clarity oftentimes. So if you can usually get about 70, 80% of the information you need, you need around something, you're good. I also assess around how am I feeling? Like if I didn't sleep well the night before, like, and I've got a big decision to make that can impact a lot of people, I will postpone that meeting and say, hey, let me get a good night's rest and then I can be you know, in a better headspace the following day. I also consider like the second and third order consequences of a decision. It's not just just like, well, let me make this decision. And it's like, yes, no, or whatever it is, green light, red light. I look at it and say, okay, well, what happens after that? Let's expand out that decision. Okay, here are all the people that it impacts. Here's kind of the upside of making the right decision. Here's the downside of making the wrong decision. And also in the standpoint of like, after this decision is made, what could be the implications of that like going forward? And sometimes around the decision, I think, okay, well, if we were to blow that decision up in, from the standpoint of like scaling it, and then I think, okay, well, let's scale that to a thousand clients. Does does it still work? Does it still hold up? Does it still make sense? Does it also make sense based on where we believe things are going in terms of the future and like what the needs are of our clients and where we see the industry going, will it make sense three years from now? Will it make sense five years from now? And if it's the type of decision that only makes sense right now or only makes sense this year, I'll generally say no, that doesn't make sense to me. But after doing this, I think all of us and people listening are, you make so many decisions throughout a day. I think, you know, the numbers like in the hundreds, if not in the thousands, but there's very, very few key decisions that you'll make throughout a year that are transformative. What Jeff Bezos calls them like one-way door versus two-way door. Two-way door, you can go back and kind of like change it, but like one-way door, like really give these decisions some thought, but not too much thought because here's the thing, it is important. Uh, I'm not wearing it today, but the shirt like indecisiveness is weakness. Decision-making, to me, I view it, speed is really, really important because it's less about trying to be perfect. I think people who try to be perfect are like the ultimate procrastinators. That I think they use this as a shield. They're saying, oh, it's not perfect yet, so I'm going to hide right. behind my work and because it's not ready, it's not ready. I think of the exact opposite. If you can make decisions with speed, you can be wrong a lot and then eventually right. I'll give an example of this. We work with firm owners and they say, oh, I need to hire a practice manager, for example. And then they'll think about it and they're like, oh, the expense of this person, the salary? What am I going to do? Where am I going to find this person? I'm going to put this off. And they'll spend a month agonizing about this decision. And then you have other firms that are like, we need to hire a practice manager, three paralegals, two attorneys. And then they'll hire those people. Those people will not work out. They'll hire new ones. Those people will not work out. Then they'll hire new ones and they'll still get there faster than the person yeah. agonizing over the decision for a year or six months or whatever. So, and it's the same thing with marketing. You can throw things up and then you can get data back. And then you can say, how are we going to iterate? How are we going to adjust? Let's get feedback from people rather than trying to like put the perfect campaign together only to then finally launch it after a year and then it fail. So to me, the speed is, is very, very important with decision making. Yeah. Yeah. And then once you get to the actual decision, 
there's the whole actual let's get shit done and the execution. And how do you go about executing? And also you say this constantly, but it's so important about who you surround yourself with. And how do those people play a factor in execution? As you were asking this question, I thought I was going to go in one direction with this. And then as you finish <laughs> that, I think I'm deciding to go in a different direction. There are human beings on this earth. They exist in the room and they breathe oxygen. The mouth breathers. They'll, yeah, they'll, they'll <laughs> eat your food, they'll drink your water, but they don't add any material value. They don't get anything done. They're the ones that have these grandiose ideas that have this ambition or this would be nice or whatever, but they don't actually get things done. And I have found that if you surround yourself with these bullshit artists, you will have a lifetime of frustration because nothing will get off the ground. Alternatively, if you surround yourself with people that like to just get things done, the discussions become we almost sit down and we're like, yes, we spend some time obviously getting clarity around what we're trying to do, making sure that it all makes sense. And then like, who's responsible for what? But it's a lot of conversations around accountability of what is the deadline? Who's accountable for it? Do you have the information that you need? Are you clear on what we're trying to do? And those meetings become much more productive. And then we have, you know, review meetings constantly. We're like, what's the status of this project? You have like the ultimate project management going on with everything it is that you're doing. And if you're the person, which I think a lot of entrepreneurs are, where you're the visionary, you have a lot of ideas, you like the new things. If you don't have the type of people around you that can make those ideas real and actually move them forward and then make sure that they recur, you're just going to be frustrated because you're going to have a hundred open loops, maybe a thousand open loops. And you know, then you're just going to get defeated and say, well, nothing can get done. Nothing gets off the ground. So I've had to realign myself in the sense that I have to be very clear about what it is that I want and what it is that we're trying to do and how we prioritize those things. And then sometimes you can't do it right away. You either don't have the person to be able to like move an idea forward or sometimes your people at max capacity, you need to expand capacity, you need to hire additional people to be able to launch that next new thing that you have to put something off. Maybe you put it off a quarter, maybe you put it off two quarters. Um, last year, there was something we really wanted to do that we're not going to be able to do until this year. And that pained me but building a virtual conference, an in-person conference, 30 plus workshops, hiring 30, 40 people, all that baby. stuff, you know, you know, a new baby. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. That by the way. Now this year, that's something that we'll be able to move forward. But I will say, I think that the execution, it really does start with being clear on what it is that you want. And then of course, surrounding yourself with non-bullshit artists, because there's a lot of people that like to smile and nod and act like they're part of a project, but they don't really add any tangible value whatsoever. And these humans exist and yet they're allowed they're to exist. They'll exist companies worldwide. Yeah. And, and the reason why I'm like, I'm like getting kind of all passionate about this is just because as a business owner and as a leader, your whole role to an extent is like to be able to like move resources from a lower level of output to the higher level of output. You're basically saying here, we're going to create something. We're going to build our firm. So that means we're going to need to have people in these different roles. We want to be able to help and support more clients. That means we got to expand our capacity. Okay. How do we make sure we maintain the same standard of service or how do we elevate our customer service? What do our operations look like? What about our tracking our metrics? You know, how's our marketing? How are we getting the phone to ring? All these different things become really like your accountability from the top of being able to find the right players to be able to bring into your organization, make sure that they're engaged and then make sure that they're committed and ensure that things actually get done. If you want to completely mess your life up and completely destroy your own business, uh, I mean, there's many ways to do this, but one of which is to be an absentee like owner. If you don't want to be there, if you're not passionate about what you're trying to do, how do you expect your people to be? I don't understand that. I don't know that anyone is ever going to be more passionate and more engaged than you are as the leader. And if you don't care and if you don't want to be there, it's easy to knock these people and say, well, they don't care. Well, start with you. And I've seen some people like, again, I'm not, I'm going to be judgmental, but I see these people that seem like they're on year long vacations, relaxing, drinking, partying. There's nothing wrong with it to an extent, but then their business is tanking and their people aren't able to really pay their bills. And it's just a mess. And their clients are you know, frustrated and all these different things and their house is not in order. So I think that your first responsibility when you create this baby of yours, like your business, your law firm is to make sure that everyone's taken care of. And then when everyone is taken care of, now you can exhale. Now you can take a breath, but until then, if you're going out and, and like drinking and partying and just going nuts and doing all this other stuff while your people are struggling to pay their bills and your clients are frustrated, like shame on you. You're in the wrong game. Next up, we look back at my conversation with Kevin O'Leary, entrepreneur, investor on ABC Shark Tank, and known by millions around the world as Mr. Wonderful. As a result of his bold yet strategic moves as a venture capitalist, he's achieved the level of wealth and notoriety that many can only dream of but Kevin has no plans to ride off into the sunset anytime soon. How does he combat complacency and keep the fire burning? 
when you become an entrepreneur, it's if you're going to be successful, it's never about the greed of money. It's because you're so passionate about what you're doing. And if you are that way and you're not pursuing money, you're pursuing freedom. I mean, to a certain extent, if you love to get up in the morning and work, you're, you're setting yourself free. I, I, I enjoy everything I do. I don't, but the whole idea was at that time, we were working seven days a week. 20 hours a day. I was flying all over the world. We were growing like a weed and really, really competitive and being very successful and growing market share. And we loved doing it. We had a really focused team of, of uh, people that had been together for almost you know, eight years. And we were brothers and sisters on this mission to be successful. And then we sell our company one day for $4.2 billion. And I remember that day, it was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And we all showed up for work again at seven in the morning the next day and looked at each other and said, what do we do now? <laughs> I mean, we were all filthy rich, but nobody cared because it wasn't any different than, than what we had been doing for seven years. And, and it was a very uh, difficult time for people to try and figure out what's next uh, because they didn't want to stop working. They, they, that was who they were. And I was in the same boat. And I've asked many other people since then that have achieved success, what happened? And, and, and they don't talk about you know, the day they sold their business. That's, that's not really that consequential. They talk about the day they started their business and why they started it. And for me, I'll never forget, you know, what took me on that journey was I was in high school and I was working, and I've told this story many times before, but I'll tell it again because it's so relevant to others. My first job was working at an ice cream store called Magoo's Ice Cream Parlor. And there was a woman that owned it. And I, the only reason I wanted the job is the girl I was interested in in my class was working at the shoe store right across the mall. And I figured, you know, if we got out at five o'clock, I could kind of hang out with her. It was a good strategy for dating. And that's what happened. The first day I show up, there she is. She's waiting for me to come out. And the owner says to me, listen, um, before you leave, scrape all the gum off the Mexican tiles because the store had these beautiful Mexican tiles on the floor, but when you're scooping ice cream, you always give people tasters on a little wooden stick and they take their gum out of their mouth and throw it on the floor. So it'd be a big black mess of sticky gum, you know, uh, on the floor. And I, she said to me, you gotta scrape the gum off the floor before you leave. Now, I thought that would be bad for me because I'm, the girl was looking at me and I'd be on my knees with a scraper and I said to her, look, this is not what you hired me for. You hired me to be a scooper, and I'm not a, not a scraper. I'm willing to scoop, but I'm not gonna scrape. I thought it'd be very bad for my brand, you know, to be on my knees scraping in terms of the whole dating thing. And she said, no, 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 no. I, I own this store, you're my employee, you'll do whatever I say. I said, well, not in the case of scraping, no can do. She said, well, how about this, you're fired. I didn't know what that was, <laughs> I had no idea. I said, what does that mean? She said, get back on your bike, go home, don't come back here. Here's your pay and cash for the day. And, and I said, what, just because I won't scrape? She said, yeah, when you're an employee and I tell you what to do, you gotta do it. Now you've been insubordinate and I'm firing you. I was so humiliated that I knew that moment, that second for the rest of my life, I would never work for anybody. I didn't care how I was gonna swing that, I just would never do it. It was so against my whole DNA to be treated that way. And I learned that moment that in the world, there's two types of people. The people that scrape the stuff off the floor and the people that own the store. For me, I wanted to be the store owner. That's sort of what set me on my journey. And I never worked for anybody again. But years later, you know, having told that story, uh, we took cameras back there from one of the networks I was working on to find her, to thank her because she was the reason that I, at that time, I could afford to bulldoze them all if I wanted. And it, the only reason I had, had achieved success was she pushed me in that direction with that unique situation. And that's what I talked to entrepreneurs about. There's that moment. And just a couple of years ago, just to end this story, I get a FedEx envelope. Inside of it is a brick. It's got a blue paint on it. It was a piece of the mall they bulldozed it to turn it into condos and someone else had heard the story and found me and sent me a piece of it. I thought that was full circle. 
So there's a degree of irony to it, isn't it? I mean, it, many entrepreneurs aren't very employable individuals and it's like, you'll, you will trade that in and instead say, I'm gonna go work 20 hours a day for years, right? Because this is what I won't do, but yet when I own the business, I'll do whatever it takes. Exactly. I mean, the whole point is entrepreneurship is not a destination. It's a journey. It's not for everyone. It's not easy. It, it's hard. But the whole idea is personal freedom. Today, each day, and I, I tell my students when I teach this, I say, look, the whole idea of being an entrepreneur is to get to a place in your life where you do not have to pick up the phone when it rings that nobody has control over your destiny anymore. If the phone is ringing and you don't want to answer it, you don't have to. And today I block my day in 30 minute segments. I work with this wonderful woman named Nancy Chung and a whole team of other people. But I look at the week each, you know, Monday morning and I say, okay, what do we got, Nancy? Let's, let, let's show me this week. What do we got? Because she's booking all this stuff. And if I see something I don't like, I just say I'm not doing it. That's where you want to get. That's where you want to get. That's not about money, that's about personal freedom. I wanna spend my time doing things that are meaningful to me, and that's, that's the journey of an entrepreneur. Throughout all your experience, I'm curious, obviously our, our listeners are primarily business owners. What are the main things you look, you look for, or you look at when deciding whether to invest in a business? Well, certainly these days, because I've been taught through the dynamics of this pandemic, which everybody's been through, I like to invest in entrepreneurs that have the ability to pivot, that are able to take a horrendously difficult situation and somehow fix it. I don't care how they fix it. Obviously, I want them to do it in a legal way, and that's the nature of business. You have to play by the rules, and they, they do. But I want people that can pivot, and that's the most important thing for me because I don't care what your business plan is, it's not gonna work out that way. It never does. It never does. You gotta be flexible. And so that's number one for me. I like to invest in entrepreneurs that are disruptive, that are doing things differently. Now, if you tell me you have another hot sauce, I have no interest in investing in you. I don't want to invest in another hot sauce. The hot sauce industry is completely fragmented into zillions of hot sauces. Who cares? We don't need another hot sauce. I don't care what your granny's recipe was. I don't want another hot sauce or a soup or another soda pop, you know? That, that kind of stuff is not interesting to me. But when I see a great idea, like a base pause, here it is again, that's a, that's a, well, I didn't think it was a great idea at the time, but I thought it was great TV, but wow, 100 million, that's pretty good. So what has been, I mean, throughout Shark Tank, I'm curious, what's been your best investment? The best investment was a deal called Plated, which sold for 340 million, also my deal. I've had some extraordinary outcomes on Shark Tank, so people should understand the real secret sauce of it is that because it goes into syndication and it's on all around the world, hundreds of millions of people see the show as it just keeps playing. And that reduces customer acquisition costs dramatically for the goods and services that are seen on the show. So the reason, you know, something like Base Paws or Bloomland, or I'm just looking for some of the other deals like Wicked Good Cupcakes, for example, which just got acquired also by Hickory Farms. Love Pop, greeting cards. I mean, all of these things are seen on the show and people buy them. And so you don't have to pay to acquire the customer. They're, they're, they're acquired by television. It's the most powerful commercial in the world. That's how it works. That's why it works. And that's why we can create millionaires year in, year out. So is there ever a situation where you have an entrepreneur come on there and let's say it's, you know, it's not a massive business, but you can take a relatively large stake in the business for a fairly small amount, maybe a hundred thousand or a couple hundred thousand. And you know, because this is going to get millions of viewers, if nothing else, you either make your money back uh, just immediately, just from the episode airing, even, you know, regardless of what happens moving forward from the company, does that ever influence your decision-making when, when you're deciding to invest? Well, it does, and often that happens, not just for me, for all the sharks. I mean, the product is immensely popular because it's interesting and it's demonstrated on the tank. You get eight minutes of primetime television. People buy it right then and there, and most companies are smart. They do a Shark Tank night deal, a special bundle or something. They know they're gonna air, so they say, look, you know, when the commercial hits, just go to this site, two for one. And they sell millions of dollars. I mean, I, I've had deals where I've made my money back in a couple of weeks because the product was so popular. That was the case with Wicked Good Cupcakes. First royalty deal on Shark Tank history. Everybody thought I was nuts. 
you know, I got 25 cents or 50 cents a jar actually until, you know, it was supposed to take three years to get my money back. I got it back in 90 days. One of the most successful deals in Shark Tank history. So I've been meaning to tell you about that. That you made your money back. That was us. That was my family. So we had uh, after that episode aired, uh, we've been probably buying it every month or so. And just most recently, even for you know for Mother's Day, I was getting it for my wife. So love that product. What about on the other side? I, I'm curious, like in terms of like bad investments from from Shark Tank. What, what's been? I mean, I, if you're able to disclose either what have been some of the worst investments, or if you don't want to name particular companies, maybe some of the lessons learned from those investments. Yeah, you know, there's. Great ideas, I think the, the best lesson is great ideas are a dime a dozen. Executional skills are really hard to find. The ability to pair executional skills with a great idea is what you're looking for because then you're going to have somebody that can drive the business forward and that's the key. And so the, where I've lost money on Shark Tank is discovering later on that the entrepreneur I backed was a terrible jockey and couldn't run a business you know, if they tried. They just had no executional skills. And ultimately, of course, they're going to fail. And that happens. I mean, all venture investment is risky. You're going to get some winners. You're going to get some losers. But the whole idea is the returns are so geometrically higher than traditional investing, like 8% or 9% in the stock market. You get 1,000x or 100x or 200x on a deal in Shark Tank, you know, like, like a base pause or like a uh, plated that started in some guy's garage and then three years later, it sells for $340 million. Those are the kind of returns that pay for all your mistakes. And that's why you do it. You, and you can't know with certainty what's going to work and what isn't. You simply can't know. And so you got to do a bunch of deals and then sit back and let it happen. To continue our Summit Spectacular podcast lineup, we'll look back on my conversation earlier this year with Eric Chafin, co-founder and managing partner of Chafin Luhana, one of the nation's most respective plaintiffs-only law firms in the nation. But before building a world-class team and achieving over a billion dollars in verdicts and settlements, how did Eric come to the decision to start his own law firm? Yeah, you know, I say it's planes and prostitutes. That's the reason why I did. And it, I came out of the US Attorney's Office and I passed up being a partner at you know, major law firms. And you know, at the time we were having an executive coach and her saying to me like, are you sure you wanna do this? And at first I'm like, well, yeah, I do. And you know, she's like, yeah, the money's one thing you're passing up a lot to go this other route, but, uh, but I'm concerned about you. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, well, you have this passion when you talk about it, like you're just, just driving passion that uh, I'm a little concerned you're gonna get burned out. And so it's time, I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Like, that's all nice, but of course I'm gonna go do this. And I did. I was very idealistic in terms of what I thought a plaintiff's attorney was supposed to be. And I uh, ended up with a couple of firms where the values weren't aligned with where I was, but I was had the good fortune of actually uh, finding someone within those firms, Rupa Luhana, who's my law partner now, who really our values were aligned and we worked a lot together. And um, eventually after just a couple of you know situations, we had a client where Rupal and I were getting on a plane to fly to Los Angeles to try a case. And uh, literally we landed in LA and we got word from one of the partners that the, it was my client and uh, without telling the client, the case got settled. And, uh, and so I'm just like, you know what? Like, this is complete bullshit. This isn't the way I want to practice my, you know, my cases and my, the area of law that I want to practice in. And so um, we just decided we should start a firm. What were those values? I, I'm curious, you know, when, when you and Rupal met, what were the values that you were aligned on? Were, were you a partner person at the time? Like, did you anticipate kind of going that route? So I was an associate. She was an associate, but she was actually coming right out of law school. And uh, of course, I had the experience I did in terms of big firm clerkship and then federal prosecutor. So I felt like I knew a lot more than I probably did at the time. I was, we were doing a lot of securities fraud litigation at that time. And so we spent you know, a couple of years working together. I became a partner at the firm I was at, at that time. Uh, we actually left and then went to another firm and started up the mass tour practice at the other firm. I remember sitting down with the partners of the second firm and Rupal was actually expecting with her, her one of her daughters at that time. And them kind of going like, wait, you're bringing her with you? She's expecting, and I'm going like, are you? You kidding me this day and age we're actually having this conversation and so he's like yeah yeah of course i'm vouching for rupal of all people like she's the hardest she's worked harder than most anybody tremendously hard worker but yeah i think for us it was um the values you know loyalty family is really important um certainly hard work's critically important and you know rupal's just wickedly smart and um really capable person and a great lawyer so how, how would you describe the dynamic between the two of you 
you know, it's interesting. I think we understand the dynamic better um, having worked with Crisp and Jess and certainly understanding our print and Colby, for example. But, you know, it's interesting when we first started, you know, I did a lot of, um, you know, the sort of bigger picture. I would do depositions. Rupal did all the prep for him, did a lot of things like that. And so she's very detail-oriented, whereas more, I was more bigger picture. And of course, you know, love doing cross-examinations. And so that was probably our early on dynamic. And now flip the, the roles and, you know, Rupal's in Florida today and this week and next week arguing Dalbert motions and the Zantac litigation. You know, my other partner, Pat Boos, trying a case in, in Pittsburgh right now. And it's, it's been an adjustment for me in a really good way, a very positive way, um, just to step back and, you know, be able to support them and what they're doing. And, uh, you know, it comes full circle. And Eric, I know, interestingly enough, we were actually talking about this earlier today. What would you say, I mean, just even between the two of you and the, and the firm have been some of the, the greatest achievements? You know, greatest achievements. I mean, we did the denture thesis litigation. So Super Polygrip, for example, doesn't have zinc any longer. I know we had a hand in that. You know, there are other pieces of that case, like the fixant litigation, which was, you know, we did 14 appeals in that part of the litigation. I like to say the defense attorneys at the time, but also say now is it was one of the greatest pro bono projects we've ever done. Because look, if you want to say doing good by doing right, you got to live by it. You got to actually follow that path and, and walk that walk. And so we do that as a firm. And so we make a conscious decision about what we're going to invest our time and money into. And then we go in and we do it. And that's something I think we're, we're very proud of. So speaking of which, and you just mentioned it, doing good by doing right. I, you could say it's almost like a slogan of the firm today. How did that come to be? Yeah, I mean, I think initially it was, um, you know, part of what I said, the, the planes and prostitutes sort of reaction to that is, you know, that's not who we are. That's not what we wanted to be. You take sort of that, that old guard sort of view of mass torts and what people are doing. Like, you know, there's just a reaction to that to some degree. With that said, I think that the fuller knowledge from my perspective is just my own personal journey. Having been sexually abused at a young age, someone with a lazy eye at five, six years old, feeling all alone and really wanting to do well by my clients, I wanted to make sure that we didn't get lost at some point in that. And so, you know, just our relationships, you know, among referral partners, among our clients and our communities. You know, I had a situation this week where we had a wrongful death case um, come into the office. It was a woman who was in an accident. Her husband was killed. She was injured. We went to sign up the case and it turns out a friend of mine from Weird West Virginia signed the case up over us. He actually got the case and we didn't. I picked up my cell phone. I gave him a call. He's someone I've fished with a ton. We've just been good friends with. And it was actually because someone, the, the way the client said it, I was like, oh, I hope, I hope we, don't, we weren't getting bad mouth about it. And I knew him. I was like, I don't think that's the case. But what I was really calling for, and he was quite surprised about is my mom, who is a social worker with our firm, said to me, Eric, when I spoke to this woman, Marge, I was really, I'm really concerned because she's obviously very upset at losing her, her husband. She's really upset right now. And I don't think she has the resources to get the counseling she needs for grieving. And I wanna reach back out to her in a couple of weeks. So I was really calling Jeff to say, hey, Jeff, is it okay with you? You know, my mom, can my mom reach back out to her in a couple of weeks? We're not trying to take the case, not gonna step on your toes anyway, but just in a loving, supporting way. And my team, and I think Jeff was taken aback by, not my team wasn't, my, but Jeff was taken aback by like, wait, you don't have an interest in this? You wanna actually reach back out to the client? And the answer is yes, it's the right thing to do. And that's really just uh, how we operate as a firm. I want to segue to talking about the client experience because I know this is something that you all focus on quite heavily, um, particularly even in the first hundred days. If you could speak to that, yeah, you know, it's, so we met Joey Coleman through Crisp, obviously, and you know, for us, we started as a national mass tort firm, but then we had the Pittsburgh office, which we opened in 2013, and so we had this this high scaled business, large volume business. Then we went back to like individual cases where we could actually sit down with the clients pre COVID, obviously, not as not as much even now, but but sit down with the clients individually, and so we looked at it and said, okay. We want to build up in the Pittsburgh office the client journey, client experience, but we also want to extrapolate back out to mass torts. And so certainly those touch points and connections are really important. Our team really feels comfortable with using, you know, simple iPhone and other things to create videos for our clients. And not just like I see people now using them to chase clients, but it's even staying connected to the clients, you know, using even John Rowland's ideas in terms of like giftology and, and doing things for clients, like taking all those pieces and kind of baking them together. We now have a client success manager, which is Stacy with our office. Her full-time dedicated position is making sure clients have the best experience. And it takes different skills, hats, and utility to do that on mass tours versus in the PI practice. I mean, we just got a, an automation award for Litify because how we automate in terms of responding to clients and not because we want to make the clients feel like a number through an automation, but instead those touch points. So it's, it's become important. So. 
and I know you mentioned even the client experience. Why is that important to you? Why, why emphasize that so much? Uh, we could spend hours on this, Michael, but you know, for our clients, we're gonna get them a monetary award at the end of the case. If we were able to say, okay, this is a case we want, we know where it's gonna go, like that's gonna happen. And within a margin, depending on who the lawyer is, it's gonna handle that. So then we say like, what value add can we offer them? And some of it's healing. You know, my mom, who's a social worker, works for our firm as a counselor. And so, as I mentioned already, you know, being able to work with them and have them help them obtain closure in their case is really important. If you're going to seek justice, you have to do justice in the process. And part of that for us, that doing good by doing right is to actually support the clients in healing. And that healing takes various forms. Some of it's just simply listening to the clients. Um, you know, one of the things I just talked to one of my coaching groups within our firm about recently was Amaga relationship therapy, which is literally a marriage counseling sort of therapy, uh, but it's this Imago dialogue, which is reflecting and mirroring and helping people hear, heal as a result. And there's other pieces to it, but those pieces are important to our team. And so just helping them be better listeners with our clients, for example. And so all this to us is really part of this journey. And I think within margins, we can impact the, the end result, but we can impact them individually on a more significant level. Building the law firm of the future is no small feat. And our next guest, Bob Tharp, knows this well. As the founding partner of Meriwether & Tharp, one of the largest and most successful family law firms in the country, which has earned a spot on the Inc. 5000 list of the fastest growing private companies, Bob credits his success to balancing innovation with a commitment to continuous improvement. We focus on winning uh, what I call the game of inches. Everyone talks about, you know, go the extra mile. Internally, they'll tell you, um, Bob's all about going the extra inch. Do a little bit better with everything we do. And the cumulative effect of a little bit better as you grow in size is a lot better happens quicker. So, you know, simple thing, you build extra half an hour a week. All right. For one person, probably not going to swing the dial. But if you get, you know, 40 plus attorneys doing it, it's going to make a difference. You get that plus all the paralegals, it's going to make a huge difference. And people don't understand the power of small little victories and just slight improvements that really influence the process. To me, it's the 1% game. It's not per se that you know we're a better firm than other firms. There's a lot of great attorneys out there. I recognize that. But we really try to push that extra 1% every chance we can into everything we do, whether it's marketing, intakes, frankly, how we run a case, how we build our systems, uh, all the way through the billing process. How would you describe the culture of the firm? We focus a little bit different than some firms. Uh, we've tried to you know, emphasize the family uh, side of the family law practice. We're a little bit more work-life balanced than I think a lot of firms that try to compete at our level. We uh, recognize that you know, there is more to this than just practicing law and that together we can achieve a lot of wonderful things. Education is the core. We really invest in our people. Uh, we invest in our clients. We believe that uh, lifetime learning is critical to our process. You gotta keep getting better. And you can learn from everything. Certainly you can read books and stuff like that. But you, you know, you know, I go to Disney all the time. And when I go to Disney, I learn something there almost every time, but that'll help me influence how to run my practice. You know, Disney does it better than almost anyone out there. When you think about who you can model, you talked earlier about looking at other family law firms. You know, let's why would we stop there? Disney um, is known for its great, excellent customer service. So you know, let's start there. Let's go with who the best in the country are doing it and see what we can do that they do. One of the big lessons I got from Disney is how much they invest in their employees so their employees could take care of you know, their folks. Nothing's perfect. I understand there's plenty of critiques people would have on it, but I think they do a pretty darn good job for a, as huge of a company as they are of helping their the focus be where it needs to be, taking care of the clients, providing excellent customer service, lifetime memories. That's what it's all about. So I want to talk because just from a leadership standpoint, just over the years, we're talking about kind of your evolution as a leader. How, how is it any different? Are you, are you different in how you lead today versus how you started the firm or how, how has this kind of evolved over time? It's definitely evolved. I, I don't even know that I would call myself a leader in the beginning. I uh, just sort of did, uh, I think what a lot of attorneys do. I just practiced law, did my thing. I'm not so sure I've recognized how fast we were growing and how big we were getting for a long time. I just kept, you know, I'm, I'm Bob, I'm doing what we're doing. And I just try to approach it with a simple golden rule type of approach. Treat others the way you want to be treated. I think though, as you grow, you start to recognize you've got to actually take ownership of your position in the firm. And that includes setting the pace, setting the tone, showing what's acceptable, what's not, holding people accountable, 
uh, for pr- the results. Um, really demanding someone to be a little bit excellent, uh, better than they were yesterday. Maybe it is a Nick Saban thing, but that extra little push, how much better can you get? It makes a difference. So Bob, I want an honest answer here when I ask you this because it, it, it's okay, right? So I can tell you right out of the gate, not everyone listening will agree or will like it. There's going to be some I think that will agree. This is something that, again, I, I like to ask leaders because I want to hear their perspective. But do you believe that as a leader, you've got to be neurotic or obsessed to be successful? I think it helps. I kid behind the scenes that um, I've made a career out of my OCD. I am probably a little bit of obsessive on everything we do. Simple little things, the font choice, how it looks, the presentation, how quickly we're calling people back, every point of contact, what can we do better? So I think you do have to be a little obsessive about trying to be perfect or at least trying to get better uh, all the time. And I think it's too easy for people to sit back and not keep trying to get better. You know, if they feel success and they're, they're pretty happy with it, I don't know that I'll ever be satisfied that will probably be the end story. I will go all the way, always going, what can I do better? Even when I practice at the very beginning, try a case, what can I do better on that trial? I would never walk out of the courtroom practically before I didn't have a list you know, of 30 items I want to do better next time. That's the way I approach everything we do. So we talk about this concept like of satiability and having achieved a level of success and, and, and you guys having multiple eight-figure years, like what keeps you hungry? What keeps you going? I think there is something just independent about trying to always get better. There is something that's sort of just the drive to see what can you do, what type of impact you can make, how many people you can help in terms of clients, what type of impact can we have on the process? We actually are out there trying to change the process. We want to see if we can make a little bit more resolution focus. That's one of our core values. Uh, It doesn't have to be as every case go to a trial. We're dealing with divorce. There's certainly practice areas that should go to trial and should battle it out. But when you got kids involved, it's not always the best approach. You know, that's one thing I think we like to approach different is our saying divorce hurts, but doesn't have to be nasty. But, you know, we really live it is, you know, we'll try to save a marriage when we can, uh, when it's still possible. It doesn't hurt your business. Uh, People always go, isn't that really counter to your business? It's just not. You always get better by trying to do right and uh, try to do good out there. Now, I believe you guys put out among the most, if not the most, like free resources, content, just period for people that uh, probably could you know, even prevent them from hiring you, right? You're giving them so much information. Um, what's the thought process behind that? It's been a content-based strategy from the very beginning. It's about just trying to help people, not just people that can afford you, but help everybody. As lawyers, we pretend to hold that the law was some great magical Wizard of Oz thing that uh, the regular person can't understand and they have to hire us. You know, and maybe that's true for some stuff. But for a lot of divorce, they have some basic questions that they deserve answers. And we shouldn't make the law so mysterious. We can explain it to them. I think it just helps improve the quality of clients that you do get. Are the clients we lose from it? Probably. Are the clients that do it on their own? Probably. I don't worry about that. Uh, They also might uh, refer five of their friends to come check out our website and maybe one of them hires us. Maybe they start down the process and they need help and they hire us later in the process. I don't think it's a bad thing. Or maybe they're actually just able to do it on their own and they might not have been able to afford to do it. So we can help them in that way. If you just take it from the concept of just trying to help people is the priority, things work out. Uh, There's plenty of people to help in this process. Bob, how uh, how do you define success? To me, always trying to get better. Always try to improve, uh, to never rest, to always see what you can do better. I don't think there's a point I'm ever going to be satisfied. I don't think there's a point that I'm ever going to be, you know, oh, I'm done. That's what I was looking to accomplish. Congratulations. We're out of here. They'll make fun of me in the side of the office quite often because, you know, we'll hit some goal internally and that meeting won't be over before I announce the next goal. I'm working on it as a leader to celebrate the victories, but I'm always looking to what's the next step? What can we do better? We hit that goal. Great. What's next? In a way, it sounds like the journey is, is the reward, right? I mean, they've done studies on this and it's shown that the actual true fulfillment comes from not the achievement of a goal, but the process of the capabilities that you gain, the challenges that you solve, you know, the adversities you overcome on the way to getting there, right? This is sometimes why I think in the, in the achievement of a goal, it's kind of an empty feeling many times, right? You know, that's a really great point. Um, probably the emptiest I felt in the practice is once we hit our 10 million mark. And I sat there with that goal out there for so long that when we hit it, I was sitting there going, what's next? 
you know, we had a couple of goals along the way that we achieved, and that was kind of the last of a series of them. It is the journey. It is the process that you'll look back and enjoy the, did you do X and hit Y? That's what you're trying to do. And sometimes X doesn't equal Y, and you, you know, go, okay, what else can I do? What can I do different? How can I approach this in a different way that might get to where I'm trying to go? But once you're there, you're right. you got to have something else that keeps pulling you along. Next up, we're joined by Alexander Shannara, CEO of Alexander Shannara Trial Attorneys, one of the most renowned plaintiff firms in the nation. Through his relentless marketing and community involvement, Alex has become one of the most recognizable faces in the state of Alabama, a walking celebrity. During our conversation, he shared what that's like. It's flattering, really. You know, I didn't really intend for any of that to happen. But, um, yeah, they do dress up as me as Halloween. Uh, if I can't go to the mall anywhere, you know, without hearing something like a Call Me Alabama or I just went to a football game, you know, this past fall. And I, from the, where I parked to the stadium was only about a half a mile walk. I had to sound my posse that was with me was counting. I, I had to stop for like 43 photographs and I pretty much missed the kickoff. But. I think it's great because, I mean, it's my business. It's my brand. I'm actually the brand, which, you know, didn't intend that either. But 15 years ago when I started this, I really honestly didn't think I was building a brand. This is like the overnight success 15 years in the making, right? Yes, sir. It's actually our 18th year, but obviously the first two or three years, it was very lean and we still have it. And it's a dear to my heart. We call it the Shannara swag, you know, where you're so I still do that every day, and uh, we have probably a hundred swag items at all times. But uh, that's how I started, you know, where you just from the business cards to shaking the hands to the refrigerator magnets to and um, to the hot sauce to the hot sauce to just anything to try to um, get someone to remember you. When I move, I move pretty fast, but I have to see something that kind of just strikes me to move. And I was just reading the paper. You know, I like uh, the financial markets also and stuff that interests me. And I had saw that San Francisco had outlawed phone books. I think it was a Wall Street Journal or USA Today. And it just resonated with me. And I love my state, but, you know, we move a little slower than people in San Francisco and out west. And the fact that the city of San Francisco had made it uh, against the law, I guess, to put the paperbacks I knew we were headed where print was, unfortunately, no offense to anyone in the print business, you know, it's awesome. But in regards to attorneys and attorney advertising, that that was not where we were headed. And so I called, actually, it was a friend of mine and actually a relative, a distant relative who I had all my ads with. And I called him up that morning. And I said, hey, I'm canceling all my phone book ads at the end of the year. And I went to um, Lamar Advertising. And I said, hey, your inventory space is about 40% off because all the car dealers had pulled and everybody had pulled and they really were struggling. I said, what are you doing with all your empty billboards? And they said, hey, we use them for public service, uh, you know, or PSAs or something. And I said, yeah, they're empty. You're not getting any money. And uh, of course, got the rate cards on them and then made this outlandish offer at the time. It was a very low amount. And um, they said, no, we could never do that. And I said, well, you know, this amount is better than no amount. And believe it or not, a month later, they came back to me. And uh, that's kind of how it started. And I bought 100 billboards at that time. And, and I'm not looking for credit. Maybe I shouldn't even say this. I think I was the person who actually started the whole phenomena of lawyers getting massive amounts of billboards. And so I feel like they've all emulated me. Uh, I can name 10 lawyers in 10 cities who went and did the same thing that I did. The thing about the space we're in, it's the personal injury space or the you don't know when someone is going to need you. So it's a one-time deal, and most people are only injured. The unfortunate, now I've had some clients who've been injured four or five times, and I don't know if they are magnets for accidents, but you only get one shot at them. So any successful law firm, it's a marathon, and you have to think of it as long-term. And that was really easy for me when I got in the billboard space. You know, I said, okay, I'm a, I love practicing law. I'm 40 years old. I'm never leaving Alabama. Um, I was born there, I'm raised there, I'm gonna die there. I'm not gonna ever do anything else and just making that calculated decision. And so, so the billboards will probably be with me. Now, I think the picture needs to change when I'm 70, but, <laughs> but it's, been, it's been a good fun run. You know, when I got to law school, 
I wanted my grades to be as, as good as anybody else's grades. And then when I got in the personal injury space, and maybe this is funny, but I, I, I can't imagine someone else being uh, the most recognizable person or the number one law firm in Alabama. You know, those are not on my watch. And I joke around that if I ever drive in Alabama and somebody has a larger law firm or is more popular than I am or more branded, or I'm just going to jump off a bridge. Because, you know, that's funny, but there's no meaning for me anymore. Because it's just who I am and it's just what I do. And the climb is fun, but staying on top is actually harder than actually the climb itself. So I want to talk about that. I mean, it's always interesting. I, I ask myself this question probably about a dozen times every single day. What would it take? I mean, if, if you just mentioned somebody, let's say, with a larger law firm or somebody take down the Shannara firm, like, what would it take to essentially either put a dent in your business or to put you out of business? Because I'm sure this, this probably keeps you up at yeah. night. I find some of the most successful people are also some of the most paranoid. I think it's called, you know, paranoia is a good word or fear is a good thing in certain circumstances. And I think so. It's the fear of regressing that keeps you motivated. But I truly believe this with all my heart. When you reach a certain level, no one can take you out but yourself. And I, when I go to bed at night, I pray for sound mind and sound body. Because if my mind is sound and my body is sound, or no catastrophic event, you know, with uh, maybe a family member or something, um, I don't think anybody can take us out. Now, we can take ourselves out. Um, you've seen that with, uh, example, like Joe Paterno, or, mm -hmm. you know, it, it really doesn't take very much, you know, being accused of some crazy crime or something. Yeah. Uh, and the public will turn on you pretty quickly. Yeah. So, oh. you, so you gotta be very, very careful. Beyond the iconic billboard marketing that has become Alex's claim to fame, he shared what drives him and what he believes separates the most successful from the least successful firm owners. First of all, you have to have the want to. And so I just finished doing my uh, 65 attorney, um, attorney evaluations just recently. It took almost like two months to do them. But um, the one thing I've learned, unless they want to be a good lawyer, unless they want to make more money, unless they want to do anything, or any human wants to do anything, unless you have the want to do it, it really doesn't matter. Now, if you have the want, then there are ways to accomplish those things and to get to the next level. But, you know, to answer your question directly, I just think, you know, there's many factors, but if you have the want to, and if you're disciplined, and if you'll take the time, and if you'll learn the space, and you'll take calculated risks, and you'll invest, and you'll hire the right people, and you'll be patient, and um, in your personal life, you know, if you're staying healthy. I've seen a lot of my lawyers who married the wrong spouse, or maybe he was the wrong spouse. Things like that can affect them. You know, I've always said this to you, um, there's a very thin line uh, between love and hate, and I think there's even a thinner line between success and failure. For me personally, I'm always trying to become better and learn different techniques. And But in the past, I have always been a control freak myself, and they tell me that um, I believe in, say, extreme ownership, um, because I know how important every, you know, just how we answer the phone or customer service or, um, the most important thing, you know, in our business, you know, you get a, a lead and it would drive me crazy if, a, if we didn't call them back within five minutes. You know, now we don't let them off the phone. But in the past, they'd call in, you know, you take a message, you know. I was always just, I guess, is it OCD? I don't even know the terms. I mean, I, look, there have been times where I have driven to people's homes at 2 a.m., 3 a.m. Now you get a little bit older and you know, you talked about compromising your health and so forth and so on, but you know, it's the little things that make the huge difference. It's, it's just the extra thing. And you know, some people don't wanna live like that. And so I think, and some people say, I have no life, but this is my life and I love my life and I enjoy what I do. And um, I don't wanna fish. While they're fishing, uh, you know, the joke is I'm fishing for marlins, which are what we call pretty catastrophic cases. Uh, even last night at dinner, they were like, well, Alex, do you play golf? I was like, no. They're like, well, what do you do? I said, I chase marlins. And <laughs> you know, it's a joke, but you know, I, I, I run my business. They're like, well, do you vacation? No. What do you mean you don't vacation? I was like, well, I'm going on spring break with my family to New York for a week, you know, that's great. And you know, in the summertime, but look, my life is a vacation. 
I'm in Atlanta today with you. That's a vacation. I ate at a five-star restaurant yesterday. We're at the Waldorf Astoria. It's incredible. So, you know, going to Vegas to speak, you go into Miami. I mean, while you're working, there are great restaurants everywhere. You can go see a show at night when you go to New York. I mean, so that is vacation. In the law business, there's two ways to handle it. You can either let your practice run you or you can run your practice. And I'm always on the offensive. To round out this Summit Spectacular episode, we're revisiting my conversation with the leader of the largest female-founded law firm in America, Jan Dills. Her road to success was by no means an easy one. One of my favorite moments from our conversation was hearing about the, let's say, exciting start to her legal career. Well, in the middle of law school, I married my husband. We've been married 29 years. I ended up having to stay in, in my hometown, a little town of Parkersburg, West Virginia. So at that point, corporate law wasn't part of the program. So I had to change gears. And I went to work for a local attorney, a brilliant criminal attorney, also had a PI practice. And then I was admitted to the bar in October. Shortly thereafter, he was um, had to take a leave of absence. And it was supposed to be three months, ended up being a year. And his deal was, here are my cases, hundreds of, of criminal cases. I'll pay your rent and you can stay here and run the business as long as you keep my cases alive. And that's what I did. Wow, okay, so then what was going through your, your head at the time? You're now officially a lawyer and, and now here's all these different cases that, to take on. You're kind of, in a way, you're on your own. Right, I'm on my own, so no salary at that point. He said, sorry, I can't pay you. He had already been paid for his cases. I wasn't getting paid there. I got on the court-appointed list. I um, started taking divorces and real estate law, that kind of thing, and just, I was the only one there. I, I basically ended up hanging my shingle and didn't want to, but it was the best thing for me. And within days of being admitted to the bar, I was arguing a case in front of the state Supreme Court. So then in having worked in all these different practice areas, what led you to gravitate towards social security disability? It really was a fluke. I was just sitting there and we we're you know, trying to pay the bills. I was three months behind on my uh, house payment because I thought I was going to have a, a decent salary. And one employee was left from his practice. Everybody else had left. And there was one employee, Alice, that stayed for free, by the way, because I couldn't pay her. And she said, we're getting all these calls for Social Security, because he had, at one time had a huge uh, Social Security practice. She goes, you just start doing these cases. And I said, I don't know how to do those. And she's like, well, you're learning everything from scratch. <laughs> What's the difference? And so she goes, I'll teach you. So I, we started taking them. And by the time a year was up, I had over 100 cases because it, then it was word of mouth. Once I took one case um, and started working on it, it brought back memories for me. When I was about 12 years old, I went to the Social Security building with my aunt who was sick and she wasn't able to work anymore. And I remember going in into the waiting room there and, and sitting there with her and watching her just not be treated very well. And I still get emotional about it. And that just kind of clicked with me when I said, when I started taking my first case and started going through it, I'm like, this is what she was doing. This is the process. Because they didn't teach social security law in law school. When I got out and started doing that, I just knew, I knew that's what I wanted to do. First case. And then, you know, when you went off on your own, I think this was in, in 94, realizing, I think, I guess, Social Security, it had to be a volume practice. And I guess, how did that influence how you would, would, right. would run the practice? I hadn't been around anybody who had done it. I had a lot of people, you know, other attorneys asking me, you know, what are you going to do? And I said, you know, I was doing everything to pay the bills. And so, you know, Social Security, there's such a lag. At that time, there was four years from the time you take a case to the time you go to a hearing. It was a four-year weighing process at that point. It's now two, but then the attorneys would be like, how are you going to make money at that? Because, you know, the fee was capped at that point. And it still is, but it was much smaller. And, you know, and I just knew from my business background that it had to be a volume practice. And you had to do things real efficiently. It's not, it's not like a PI practice where their profit margins are so much better, but it was definitely a practice that you had to be efficient and you had to do a volume. 
and with volume, I guess, comes advertising. And I imagine there's not a whole lot of that going on really nationwide, and especially in, in West Virginia at the time. That is uh, completely correct. So back in, you know, talking about 94 and early 95, the phone book rep came in and the back of the phone book was available and I bought the back of the phone book. Um, had no way of paying for it. I couldn't even pay for the secretary that was you know, outside my door. But he came in and I was like, this is the way it needs to be. And because you can't, if it, no one knows you or has heard about you and I just came out of law school, then how do they know what you do? And then I guess shortly after the phone book, I guess the, uh, the other advertising starts to pick up. I imagine you start to, to, to gain some traction and start to see some success there. Did that kind of lead you to, to start to invest more and more in advertising? It did. I started with the phone book. Of course, I came from a car dealership. So my dad was big on advertising. And so I was familiar with the, you know, the traditional advertisers, the TV, radio, and newspaper. So when I started after the phone book, and then I would move, I moved in 97, I cut my first commercial. That's when I really realized the power of it. And I guess a, a prevalent theme across your life is, is really not taking no for an answer. Today, I know you have that also like trademarked and there's the jingle. And I'd love to hear about the origin of the jingle because I think that that yeah. played a very important role in, in the growth of the firm. Jan Dill's attorney at law. She won't take no for an answer. Collect, you were denied. The jingle that I have is not the original jingle. It's like the fifth jingle, by the way. I went through four jingles and I just didn't like it. And it just wasn't me and it was just hokey. And I thought, not this, this isn't hokey. But so this person that formulated this jingle sat down and talked to me and said, Well, tell me about your life. And I would just went around and, you know, I just, we had a long conversation about how I got here, the perseverance coming through. You know, with my, my dad's a wonderful human being, but he motivated me without knowing he motivated me. So just applying to law school, saying, yeah, you'll never get in, and going back before that. Many times where he would just say, you can't do that. And then that would just motivate me more. So when I was talking to the, to the gentleman, that's how that came about. And, and even with a jingle, I, I don't know what you thought about jingles in general, whether that would work or not. Um, from what I recall, you were even reluctant to even take that meeting. I think you, you did it as a favor. I did. I, so the reason I did the jingle was a friend of mine went to school with him. It was a radio rep. He thought, hey, this would be a great idea. I'm like, I'm already getting a lot of flack from my peers about being on TV. You know, the last thing I wanted to do was put a jingle on top of that. But good family friend. I said, I'll, I'll take the call. And once I did that, I started seeing the value and I had to put away the, the fear of being different and putting myself out there. And once we created it, I knew it was the right jingle. What do you think about it made it so successful? I don't know, but I, can, I wish I did know what was the secret sauce to that jingle. But I have generations come to me singing that jingle. It's just you hear it once and it doesn't leave you. It's such a common saying, won't take no for an answer. It's just such a common saying. And then singing in that, in that long drawn out <laughs> tone, I think is part of it. And it's just easy to remember. Jan Dill's attorney at law. She won't take no for an answer. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at gamechangingattorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. <laughs>